God's word. So let's just welcome her as she comes and uh, shares with us. Hi, good morning. Uh, good morning, everyone here and also those uh, who are joining us online. So the other day, a spider crawled into my kitchen basin. I hate spiders. So I took out my trusty can of bygone and tried to kill the spider in the basin. Did you know that bygone doesn't work on spiders? Plus, you end up with a really oily basin. And so when it was still hopping around after about four sprays, I came to my senses and trapped it under a plastic container and flushed the spider down the drain. And this nursery rhyme started playing in my head. I'm going to sing it because you already are. In English and Chinese literature, poetry and songs are prized for their rhythm and rhyme. Itzy Bitsy Spider is a good example of rhyming by sounds. But when it comes to Hebrew literature, things are a bit different. Hebrew poetry rhymes by ideas. Take, for example, the poem in our passage from 2 Samuel chapter 1. In verse 20, Tell it not in Gath, rhymes with publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. While lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, rhymes with lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You can also see that the phrases which rhyme with each other share the same sentence structure. When similar ideas are expressed back-to-back in this way, it is called synonymous parallelism. When different or contrasting ideas are expressed side-by-side, that is called antithetic parallelism. For example, in verse 22, from the blood of the slain contrasts with the fat of the mighty, because slain and mighty are different ideas. Then the bowl of Jonathan turned not back rhymes in contrast with the sword of Saul returned not empty because turned not and returned are opposite actions. There is one more form of parallelism called synthetic. This is the adding or expanding of ideas to what has already been expressed. Verse 23 rhymes in this way. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, is the first idea. It describes Saul and Jonathan. Then the next line, in life and in death they were not divided, is a different idea, but it describes the relationship between Saul and Jonathan. So it adds on to what we already know about the both of them. Hence, they form a synthetic parallelism. Understanding Hebrew parallelism helps us to appreciate the beauty of Old Testament poems, Psalms and Proverbs, even though we cannot read the original language. Yesterday, at the Saturday Contemporary Service, this is where people have started to fall asleep. But I was so happy, you know, to actually see people falling asleep. Yeah, uh, we're very lonely down here for the past month. I'm glad to see you all. That's what I'm trying to say. Today, we're going to study this poem in Second Samuel together in this expository sermon. We'll look at the general structure of the poem. Then we'll try to understand the contents uh, with the help of information from the first book of Samuel. Finally, we'll draw out the message for today, which is, make God the center of relationships. From verses 17 and 18, we know that David wrote this poem to lament the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. The title of the poem is The Bow, or The Song of the Bow. Some Bible translators think that the word bow was written by mistake, 
and therefore did not include it in the translation. The ESV Bible, which was read for us, excluded it, but the NRSV Bible uh, included it and translated it as the poem's title. After the first reading of the poem, we would have noticed that how the mighty have fallen is repeated in verses 19, 25, and 27. This repeated line is called a refrain. Refrains function as a simple response that people can memorize and sing along to uh, when the poem is sang in public. Our refrain also carries the subject and emotional theme of the poem. Furthermore, David uses this refrain to structure his poem. The refrains in verse 19 and 25 envelope the verses between them. This is a literary device called an inclusio. And it signals to us that verses 19 and 25 belong together as one unit. The refrain in verse 25 does double duty because it forms a second inclusio with the final refrain in verse 27. Therefore, we understand that this poem has two distinct units. And the beauty of it is, you can recite either unit on its own and it will still sound complete. Now, let us take a look at the refrains themselves. The verbs in red, fallen, is slain, perished, indicate that this poem is a lamentation, mourning the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. They were not only dead, they were defeated and killed in battle. David repeatedly mentions their demise throughout the whole song, perhaps due to shock, disbelief, or perhaps no words could express this awful reality. However, instead of saying Saul is dead or Jonathan is dead, uh, repeatedly like so boring, huh? he used other descriptions to refer to them. For example, here we have the words in blue, the mighty, your glory, and the weapons of war. These are honourable and poetic substitutes. Elsewhere, the shield of Saul and the bowl of Jonathan are used. For this reason, we understand that the title of the poem, The Song of the Bowl, really means the song of Jonathan. Writing songs to remember those who have lost continues throughout the ages. Don McLean's American Pie, 1971, was written in memory of his rock and roll hero who died in a plane crash with two others. In the song, he used the refrain, The Day the Music Died, to refer to the tragedy ten years ago. Elton John's Candle in the Wind, 1997, was written for his close friend, Diana, Princess of Wales. He, refer he refers to her in the lyrics as England's Rose, Our Nation's Golden Child, and Loveliness Itself. And more recently, in 2015, Universal Studios commissioned the song See You Again for actor Paul Walker, who died in a car accident. Of the three songs, this one captures the hope of resurrection in the chorus. It's been a long day without you, my friend, and I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. Now let us turn to the contents of our song. The first unit contains a national tribute to the king and prince of Israel. David begins with how they have fallen in verses 19 to 21. Gath and Ashkelon are well-known cities of Philistia. 
David mentions them as a reminder that the Philistines are the ones who caused the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. The dread of celebrations among the Philistines, of women coming out to receive their triumphal warriors, alludes to Israel's defeat. Of course, the Philistines already know the news. 1 Samuel chapter 31 records for us what happened when the war ended. On the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Therefore, we must understand that David wrote these verses not as a real prohibition, but to convey the humiliation of their defeat. In verse 21, the word anointed reminds us that Saul is God's anointed one. He was the first king of Israel, and this makes Israel's defeat even more humiliating. How can it be that the man God consecrated for himself has been desecrated in the hands of unholy enemies. Therefore, David cries foul, cursing the mountains in his anger, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. In other words, let there be no growth, no harvest, no reason for celebration or thanksgiving ever again on Mount Gilboa, because this is where the mighty has fallen. Let it be a place of perpetual sadness and moaning. We can relate to this if we think of how we would rather not go back to the place where we quarreled with a friend or broke up with someone. Through his account of his death, David demonstrates for us how to deal with grief. We see that it is natural to be in shock, to be in disbelief. It is all right to say that you feel ashamed, defeated. It is normal to be downcast, fallen, and even angry with people and places. In addition, the fact that the poem is in the Bible tells us that God created us to have these emotions, and he fully expects us to experience them. Therefore, we can and we should express these feelings before God when we deal with the death of those who are dear to us. Moving on to verse 22. David tells us how mighty they were. It begins with a rather gory description of war. You can almost see the blood spurting out when the arrow hits his target, or the fat exposed when the sword slices through skin and flesh. All this is to say, of course, that Saul and Jonathan were warriors who fought mercilessly and courageously on the battlefield. Next verse, 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. In spite of Saul's insecurities about his people's loyalty to him, David says that Saul and Jonathan were beloved and adored by his people, not least because they were lovely in appearance. Maybe it's kind of like how some Canadians and people in the world adore the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I've uh, included pictures from different stages of his life to appeal to the different stages uh, or, or audience in our midst. He is handsome, no? Okay. Yesterday the reaction is a bit um, more obvious because you're closer. So now the giggle's a bit muffled, but I can hear, okay. 
The Bible tells us that Saul is as good-looking as Trudeau. He was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And we can safely say that Jonathan took after his father. Plus, both of them had the physical abilities to match their looks. They were very fast and very strong warriors. Finally, we note from this verse that Saul and Jonathan were fiercely loyal to each other. In life and in death, they were not divided. This is a huge thing to say, considering the tension between the father and son. 1 Samuel records for us a quarrel between them. Now, this was when Jonathan had made an excuse for David, who was hiding from Saul. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul was angry with his son for choosing David as his future king, essentially giving up his inheritance to him. This was a shameful betrayal of his family and the tribe of Benjamin. Therefore Saul commands Jonathan to bring David so that he can eliminate this threat. But Jonathan disagrees. He answered his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Just as his father was angry with him, Jonathan was angry with Saul for trying to kill an innocent man, not to mention his best friend and king. So you can see there was tension between father and son because of David. Yet in spite of the differences, they were fiercely loyal to each other and fought alongside one another to the bitter end. Continuing with verse 24. This verse reminds the Israelites of what Saul has done for them. The people were wealthy and rich with possessions because Saul plundered their enemies and shared the spoil with them. Therefore David ends his tribute by calling Israel to mourn for their king. With carefully chosen words and ideas, David sang praises of the mighty, from their inner character to their outward appearance and their relationships with everyone. He leads the nation to honour the dead and provide words for them to express their collective guilt, shock and grief. Anyone could relate to this part of the poem if they knew their king and prince. The second unit of the song contains just one verse. We know that it is David's personal tribute to Jonathan because this is the only verse in the entire poem that uses first-person pronouns. I am, my brother, and to me indicates that it is his private message and personal grief for his friend, which he does not expect others to share. And in this verse, we see a deeper level of emotions. David was distressed. Jonathan was a brother and a very pleasant one. 
This means that David found Jonathan a very comfortable person to talk to, very lovely to spend time with, and very agreeable to speak with. And even more so than David's own brothers. And we recall that David has seven biological brothers. Distress and pleasant are contrasted here. The parallelism brings out this truth. The greater our love in life, the greater our sorrow in death. Following that, David acknowledges that Jonathan's love for him was extraordinary. Extraordinary in the sense that it was wonderful, extremely good, nothing bad about it. It doesn't mean unusual or queer or homosexual. To emphasize this wonderful love, David used antithetic parallelism again. He contrasts Jonathan's love for him with the love he receives from women. Now note that David was not comparing Jonathan to women. The comparison is between the quality of love, the intensity of Jonathan's bromance versus the women's romance. And we know that David has many wives and concubines, but he found that women did not love him as well as Jonathan did. We wonder, how did Jonathan love David? First Samuel tells us that Jonathan's love for David was wholehearted. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This is where the idea of soulmates uh, came from. A concrete demonstration of their closeness was at their first meeting. Back then, when Jonathan met David, he gave him his robe, his armour, his sword, his bow, his belt. I checked with the congregation yesterday, but they didn't uh, believe it or didn't acknowledge this. But I thought there was a saying, right, of how guys can be such good buddies that they wear the same underwear. I'm not sure if this is, I heard it in Singapore or, you know, somewhere else. Anyway, how many of us would give our jackets, wallets, bags, sneakers, and underwear to our best friends? Give or not share. Cannot take back one. But Jonathan gave David everything he had, including his crown. By contrast, David found that his wives were not as wholehearted. Instead of giving to David, they probably wanted more things from him. They especially coveted his throne for their sons. Jonathan's love for David was also faithful. When trouble first started, when Saul first expressed intentions to kill David, Jonathan interceded for him. Subsequently, when it was clear that Saul was determined to kill David, he did not betray David but helped him to escape instead. And for as many years as Saul hunted David, Jonathan kept his friend's location secret, even though he knew where he was all along. David probably did not find his women as faithful. All things considered, Jonathan's wonderful, wholehearted and faithful love for David was unmatched by the love he received from his brothers and his wives. Therefore, David, missing a part of his soul now that Jonathan is gone, wrote this lamentation. It was the full exposition of the Song of Jonathan. I hope it was clear and helped you to 
I encourage you to study more psalms on your own and plumb the depths of biblical poetry. After studying this poem, I had one question though. Why is this in the Bible? How is this the wisdom of God? What does it mean for us? As I meditated upon the life of our title character, the relationships that Jonathan had with Saul and David jumped out at me. Entangled relationships. Jonathan is the prince and covenant friend of David, who was the servant and enemy of Saul, who is the king and father of Jonathan. David honoured Saul by not killing him, but Saul tracked him down like he was hunting a dead dog. And Jonathan, entangled with the two of them, was somehow able to manage his relationship with each of them. This was by no means an easy thing to do. By siding with his friend, Jonathan would be seen as a traitor to his king and a disgrace to his family. By siding with his father, Jonathan would have caused David to doubt his love and be suspicious of his promises. An outsider may even think that Jonathan is a two-faced, double-headed snake who tried to please both sides. But regardless of what his father, his friend and people may think of him, the fact that scripture praises Jonathan for remaining loyal to Saul and faithful to David vindicates him. God approves of how Jonathan had dealt with the relationship between Saul and David. Jonathan has done well. What this means for us is there is something to learn from Jonathan's interpersonal skills. And his secret appears to be this. Make God the centre of your relationships. In the final analysis, we realise that Jonathan did not side with his father or with his friend. He didn't approve of his father's hatred, and he did not obey his command to betray David. Neither did he do what David might have wanted him to do, which is to leave his father's camp and join him instead, like many other people have done. Ultimately, he didn't take sides. Instead, he stood before God. He remembers God's commandments and used them to guide his decisions and actions. God says, honour your father and your mother. Hence, even though his father was wrong, Jonathan did not disgrace him, but remained by his side to serve him. And God says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord, he shall not break his word. Hence, even though David did not trust him in the beginning, even though his father pressured him in public, Jonathan remained true to all the promises he made to David with God as their witness. God was at the centre of Jonathan's relationships because Jonathan obeyed God in all his dealings with Saul and David. If we analyse our own lives, we find ourselves entangled in relationships too. For example, what do we do when our boyfriend wants us to move in with him but our parents disapprove? Or how should we respond when we find out that our new supervisor is unpopular with our colleagues? And how do we behave when our group is assigned a new member who would rather not work with us? Faced with such relationship issues, we may not know what to do or who to listen to. 
can spend hours talking to our classmates uh, on bus rides or uh, over lunch with our colleagues or send countless text messages with our friends only to be more uncertain and prove to be none the wiser. In the end, we may well end up following our sinful inclinations to rebel, to ostracize and to retaliate. However, our relationships doesn't have to be so entangled. If we make God the center of our relationships, it becomes clearer, although it's not going to be easier. We realize that we don't have to take sides with anyone because we stand with God, our Father. We don't have to figure out what to do on our own. We just follow Jesus. We don't have to fear the opinions of our family and friends, seek the favor of our bosses or colleagues, or bind ourselves to cliques and factions. Certainly, we may still be hurt by the sins of other people we're related to, but each of us will be accountable to God. May God, who is love, be the center of our relationships so that we are free from unnecessary entanglements, free to love each and every neighbor as ourselves, doing what is right and lovely and honorable in life and in death to the approval and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us reflect upon the word of God as it has been spoken before us. We hear the encouragement to put God at the center of our relationships. And yet the truth be told, many of us struggle. Sometimes it's our own fault, but oftentimes it's uh, mutual in that both parties have a part to play. And there are some of us who may have felt betrayed or our hearts have been broken or we've been challenged in the area of our relationships. The Word of God, especially in the Proverbs, tell us that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And when Jesus walked the earth, he spoke about the fact that no greater love is this than one who is willing to lay down his life for his friend. And we acknowledge that ultimately this friend who sticks closer than a brother is Jesus. Let's just come before him right now and lay our lives bare before him and allow him to minister his grace to us. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son Jesus came and walked this earth and he is indeed that friend who sticks closer than a brother. When we look at a relationship like David and Jonathan had, oftentimes, Lord, it leaves us with longing. Father, we ask that you would help us to be good friends to those around us. And where we have fallen short, Lord, we look to you from where our help comes. 
Father, I thank you that you demonstrated your love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this great love is ours now. And I pray that the love will permeate our lives into the lives of those whom you have placed us in relationship with. Those of us who may need a healing of relationships, Lord, we pray for your love to come and do that deep work. Those who have been betrayed, Lord, will sense that your love is greater still, and that you can heal all those broken hearts. And Father, for those of us who are striving to be good friends, help us, Lord, to live out the love that you have in us and given to us. All these things we ask and pray in your Son's most precious name, and all God's people say, Amen. We're going to take up the offer.